0: Welcome to the second addendum to the first season of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. I'm making this episode because there's been a few revelations with the players in this story ever since the last addendum that I released. I made contact with Mark Hinshaw, the attorney friend of Ron Sampson, and as you probably remember, Mark became an integral person in this podcast during the episodes we recorded in West Des Moines, and he's the person who went with me and carried most of the interview when we met with Sam Soda. So with another month having passed by, I wanted to know that things were continuing to move forward. I had been receiving a lot of emails, most of which were from Ron, just talking about ideas. Ideas on how to proceed in finding out more about Wilbur Millhouse. How to go about making contact with Frank Sikora. Finding a way to reach out to anyone who was a paper carrier for the Des Moines Register at that time and ask if they have any memories of inappropriate behavior by any managers or other staff. I would feel really energized whenever I got one of these emails because what it told me was that it had reached a point where I, as the podcaster, was not the person who needed to continuously push Johnny's story forward anymore. In fact, when I play you one of the clips from my conversation with Mark, you'll hear me even mention how when this podcast began, I was the person moving the story along, and now it's gained so much momentum with Ron and Mark and John and Yellowbag all in the mix that I feel like I'm the one who has to keep up with them. So in the last addendum, I talked about a few things that happened since the finale, namely that John Sr. and his wife, Sheila, had come to visit the Des Moines area, and how they all got to go out to a restaurant and spend some time with Sam Soda. So I wanted to get Mark's thoughts on this, as someone who was there and had become invested in the case, but also someone like me, who is not an insider, we're each an outsider looking in on each player in the case. Mark is very good at looking at this entire story objectively and making logical conclusions out of things, as opposed to being swayed by the many theories that have risen about Johnny's abduction over the past three and a half decades. So here's the first part of my talk with Mark Hinshaw, where I asked him about where things go from here.
1: I think the broader um, issue that we're trying to deal with is just to get the story out there, uh, to get the history out there. And if there are a lot of victims out there, you know, we know there are at least 10 victims out there just based on Wilbur Millhouse and the Sephora brothers. Yeah. Um, My guess would be that there have to be hundreds of uh, carriers that work for the register that were most likely subjected to uh, some sort of abuse. And so, you know, perhaps it can, uh, by getting this out there more in the public, not only can it help advance the giant gosh story, but perhaps it can uh, provide an outlet to provide some healing and um, relief to some of these individuals that were victims back
0: then. I I know that um, Johnny's dad has been uh, really invested in this lately too, and so what? It, what was that like to meet John? What was your first impression of him?
1: Oh, he is just a wonderful man. Um, just you could ask to be involved with a, a nicer gentleman. Um, very accommodating, just very personable. Um, just a. He's the type of guy that you would just want to sit down and have a couple of beers with because he's just a real, um, real interesting guy. Well,
0: and what was that meeting with, um, with when you guys had gone out, uh, to lunch one day with, it was you and Ron and John and Sam Soda. So I was wondering, what, can you tell me what was that whole meeting like?
1: It, it was really, uh, a great meeting. Sam was wonderful. Um, Sam and John were both uh, former breeds, so they they have that common bond, and uh, just to hear the dialogue and the give and take between the two of them was uh, was very interesting. Um, Yellowback was there with us as well, so it, it was just it was a great roundtable, and I think um, you know it's it was great. It's great for Sam because Sam's not in great health, and it's I think it's. Um, I think his wife was probably, you know, getting a little boring, and this has perked uh, his ears up a little bit. Um, but just hearing them uh, recollect about what things were like at the beginning of the investigation was fascinating.
0: So does it seem like Sam wants to sort of get involved again in this? Just based on some of the emails that I saw from Ron, it seems like Sam Soda is sort of reinvested in this again.
1: yeah Sam wants to be able to um, provide as much assistance as he can uh, obviously at some of the health issues. but I know one of the things that Ron is really keen on is Ron wants to get up to Ruthman Iowa and interview this Frank Sakura individual trying to figure out who this guy ran with, how he knows Millhouse um, if he can provide any names or information for other individuals that may have been involved back at in this time.
0: Another thing that I've noticed, too, a lot of the emails that I've been reading, it, I almost feel like I I started off doing this podcast being the one moving the story forward. And now I feel like it's sort of reached the point where I'm trying to keep up with everyone else now. So uh, I, I was kind of wondering, um, what is the plan next? What would be the next move regarding... Wilbur Millhouse.
1: We have to go through all the newspapers. dot com articles where the circulation managers are advertising for paperboys from that time period. So from 1978 to 1985, or 1983, if we run a search, we find all the circulation managers. There were most likely 100 to 200 circulation managers in that time. And then we need to compile the list of the names. And then we just need to methodically go through and interview these individuals one by one. Um, And I think that's, that's the way we're going to be able to get more information about Milhouse.
0: I'd like to point out something that some listeners have mentioned to me, and this is also something that Don Patochny had talked to me about in an email. He's the man with whom I went through the microfilm at the library in Des Moines. I get a lot of comments reassuring me that the number of people who believe in the wild theories about Johnny regarding international pedophile rings and visiting his mother in 1997 and hiding out on an Indian reservation, that number is actually very minute. Compared to the people in the Des Moines area who have heard of Johnny Gosh, and though they've heard of the whole legend surrounding Johnny, as it were, the vast majority of them will admit that it's evolved into exactly that at this point—a legend. Mark articulated that point very well.
1: I, I don't. I think it's reached the point where uh, we're going through this so systematically, and so uh, everything we're doing is just fact-based.
0: Right,
1: objective analysis of it. So all the conspiracy theories, if that whole you know group of people that want to advance conspiracy theories, let them do their thing. That's their their issue, their problem.
0: I'll have more of my talk with Mark in a few minutes, which I think you'll want to hear because he reveals something interesting regarding Sam Soda. But now I'm going to talk a bit about John Rossi, the witness in the initial report who was up at the corner of 42nd and Ashworth on the morning that Johnny was taken. Over the past week, I was able to make contact with Rossi's daughter, Peggy, through email. In my first email to her, I asked her if she could relay some questions from me to her father and if I could interview her over the phone. And while we did not speak over the phone, she did answer each of my questions in her response to me, which actually clarified a few details for me, which I realized I had wrong from the beginning. So I'd like to share a piece of that email exchange. I started with Hi, Peggy. My name is Sarah Dimio, and I created the podcast Faded Out, which has been following the Johnny Gosh case. Would you be available to speak over the phone one night this week, and I'll record our conversation so I could use parts of it in an upcoming update episode? Some things I'd like to ask are, how long did your family live in the house at the corner of 42nd and Ashworth? When precisely did your father sell that house? Did your father see Johnny regularly when he did his paper routes? How familiar was he with Johnny? Meaning, is he completely certain that Johnny was the boy he saw that morning? What does he remember about the man driving the car asking for directions? So Peggy responded with, Hi Sarah, I don't check my email much, sorry. I'm not interested in being interviewed, but I will tell you a few things. One, we never lived on that corner. We lived a few blocks away. My dad saw Johnny that morning because my dad went to pick up our newspapers in his car. He pulled up in his car and saw Johnny talking to a man in another car. Johnny said to my dad, Can you help this guy? He needs directions to 22nd Street. So my dad went over, gave him directions, and the guy left. My dad loaded the papers in his car and left. Two, my dad rarely saw Johnny and didn't know him at all. My brother usually picked up the papers. My dad was helping that day because it was a holiday weekend and we were trying to get out of town. Three, he is certain the man in the car was talking to Johnny. He remembers the man vaguely and didn't think anything of it at the time. He had a baseball hat in the seat of the car. He was in the driver's seat but had swung his legs onto the passenger side. The passenger door was open and he was leaning towards the passenger side of the car. He seemed to be in a hurry and sped away after my dad gave him directions. Good luck on finding out what happened. Let me know if you have other questions. So the first thing that jumped right out at me all this time, I had assumed that because John Rossi was up at the corner of 42nd and Ashworth that morning that he lived at the house that was right there. But the Rossis never lived there. They lived a few blocks away. John Rossi arrived there in his car that morning and left after picking up his kids' papers. I don't think I'm alone in making that assumption. I think actually a lot of people thought that was the Rossi's house, because I don't know of a single report, either online or elsewhere, stating that Rossi drove to the corner that morning. The next thing that jumped out at me was, the only thing he saw sitting in the seat was a baseball hat. There was never a manila envelope with either a work order or a picture of Johnny, as stated in America's MIA Children, that old video that I shared clips from in the early episodes of this podcast. So those were the parts that kind of surprised me, but then there's the part that actually troubled me. Peggy stated clearly her dad rarely saw Johnny and didn't know him at all because it was her brother that would typically go pick up the papers. So this gets me thinking, how can he be certain the boy he saw was Johnny? Johnny Gosh looked like most other 12-year-old boys from that time. Could it just be John Rossi's brain remembering that boy as being Johnny well after the fact. And when I got this email from Peggy, immediately I thought of Chris Burge, who ever since I spoke to him in episode 16 has been saying he knew Johnny, he saw him that morning, and he saw him cross in front of the Burge's house on Marcourt Lane because Johnny's pickup spot was at 42nd and Marcourt. Johnny had no reason to cross the churchyard and go up to Ashworth Road that morning. So I emailed Chris Burge and I said, Chris, John Rossi's daughter told me what you've been saying from the beginning, that the Rossis never lived at 42nd and Ashworth. And ever since I made contact with Chris, he had been reaching out to other people who have been named as witnesses that morning. Kevin and Mark Bozen, the two brothers who were walking up 42nd Street towards Ashworth and saw Johnny standing in the spot that he was taken from on Marcourt, And also PJ Smith, the boy who lived on Marcourt Lane, who saw a Ford Fairmont run the stop sign. I knew that each of these guys had responded to Chris when he reached out to them because he had shown me their responses. So I asked Chris if I could interview him again, and if he could reiterate those responses to me to share with you. Chris also mentions the production company Rumor. Rumor, just to remind you, is the company that made the documentary, Who Took Johnny? So here's my recent phone call with Chris Burge.
2: Okay, yeah, and I'll start with um, PJ Smith. I, I emailed him, and so he just sent me an email back. And I can read it to you in full. He just said, Hi, Chris. Good to hear from you. I'm officially out of the Johnny Gosh business. Not going to change anything that hasn't already happened, unfortunately. All I saw that morning was a silver and black Ford Fairmont. Ignore the stop sign and make a left of 42nd Street. Saw nobody slumped over a wagon or even recall seeing the wagon or Gretchen. He'd like to pass that on to Sarah. Good luck on the podcast. Hope we get lots of downloads. And he signs off. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much all he really he said that he saw and really has to say about it. So that there was a silver and black Ford
1: Fairmont.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to reiterate what he said. In there, that um, nobody saw Johnny slumped over a wagon at any point, or sitting on the wagon, um, or whatever. Any of these various reports that you can find online say like nobody yeah. saw that. Like nobody saw him uh, slumped over, looking like he was sick or any anything like that.
2: He doesn't recall seeing the wagon or the dog or anything. Just the car is where he stayed. So okay. Yeah, I read that somewhere so. as yeah. well. and
0: then with
2: uh, Kevin,
1: when the
2: uh, documentary was first, there was like a one-hour version, and we talked. A my dad got me. It was aired. He got me a copy of it and sent me a copy. So I watched it, and then I I contacted Kevin Bowden on Facebook. And he just said, and this is what he wrote, Hey, Chris, been to hear from you. He said he was contacted a while ago from someone about the documentary about Johnny from at He thought it was a freelance group they were doing for the 30th anniversary. They had a lot of information about the morning. They also had some eyewitness accounts that I told them were not true. They never called me back. He goes on to say, truth is, there isn't much to tell about the morning. No one saw anything. Mark and I saw him start his route, and that's it. And then he sent me an, an email he got from rumor just about the contact information. And then I asked him about his route, where to, to clarify where he picked up his papers and what houses he delivered to. And he said that, this is what he said, Hey, Chris, we got our papers at 42nd Nashworth. Walking from our house to the corner, Mark and I did see Johnny. He was in the location that he was taking on Marcourt. After we got our papers, we walked back and west on Marcourt. This time when we passed, he was gone. We delivered papers at those townhomes on Woodlands.
0: Okay. And, and, and they-
2: then I... I go on to ask him about. um, I said that's how I remember it. I said I saw him and Mark on the corner of Forty Second Mark Court, and Johnny was walking toward them. When I saw him, he was exactly where the wagon was found. And then I asked if he saw Johnny at the corner of Forty Second Ashworth, and didn't remember John Rossi. He said, we did not see Johnny on the corner of Ashworth. He had already got his papers and was starting to deliver. So I don't know if he knew that, because he was walking up to the corner when I saw him. So I don't know if what they, he thought. He said, we didn't see anyone getting papers that morning. I don't remember John Rossby. I never heard that here anyone witnessed anything that morning. I'm not sure the interview with John Rossby was factual.
0: Yeah, because what what John Rossi's daughter told me was that um, they lived a few blocks away and uh, John Rossi had driven up uh, with his son and he came only to help because it was a holiday weekend and I guess they were planning on getting out of town. He believes he saw Johnny speaking to a man in a Ford Fairmont. Johnny, as it were, came up to John Rossi and said, look, look, this guy needs help. He needs directions to 22nd Street. And so John Rossi gives the guy directions. The guy gets, like, closes his car door and drives off. And it was really just that quick. It was just a few minutes of an encounter. And one thing that uh, his daughter Peggy told me was that John Rossi did not know Johnny at all and rarely saw him. And that's got me concerned that the boy that he saw talking to this man in the car was not Johnny. Maybe it was just a boy that looked similar to Johnny.
2: Well, just the Kevin Bozen thing, I told him about you through Facebook and asked him to give you a call. And his reply was, I don't mean to ignore you. If I had information I thought would help. I would love to offer that to Noreen. I can't imagine what her life has been like. So, I tried to get Kevin to kind of com- you know talk to you and to confirm what he saw. And I guess he kind of has the same feeling as PJ. You know, it's not really going to change anything. And I, mean, I, don't, I I don't know. I did, I did try to send the invitation to uh, to talk to you, and I passed along your information because I would, you know, I obviously I want somebody to hopefully. Uh, corroborate
0: what I saw. So yeah, and I, and I, I appreciate that. And I mean, obvi- obviously, we all know that um, it's not going to change anything. We we know Johnny's not going to come back or anything like that. But I think um, I, I think everybody just would like to see this be done, like see the case be closed. I think that's that's the only the only possible outcome anybody could hope for. Um,
2: yeah, that's everybody's goal. I mean, we'd all like to know what happens.
0: Where did this report come from of somebody seeing a man walk out from between two houses and supposedly follow him down 42nd Street? Because if John Rossi wasn't even there, he already left, and uh, if the Bozen brothers already passed by, I mean, who was left to actually see anybody walk out from between two houses? So I, I think is 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 that something that absolutely anybody can corroborate that a man walked out from between two houses?
2: Well, I went back through the news articles and what it seemed to me is like some of the initial things that and this is I gather was Mike Seskis. So right along that area I think along that strip by the high school is where Mike Seskis was first encountered on Ashworth, which is I don't know if that's Thirty fifth, but it says right along there he first was encountered a guy asking for direction, and that he went up and that he encountered the guy again, or she saw him talking to John Rossi, and went home and told his mother, and that seemed to somehow it seemed like that was the first report, and then later there was reports that. Apparently, because I don't understand if Mike Steskis was at the corner where he went to deliver his papers from there, but it seems to say that Mike Steskis was the witness and then he went down 42nd Street. I don't know why, because he, there's no... No houses to deliver down
0: there. I think it's easy for it to get convoluted too when, like, you know, a, a young paper boy sees something and then tells his mother, and then it's sort of like the story sort of people's fears sort of take over and they, they sort of like unwittingly sort of add things into the story without even realizing it, and it sort of becomes convoluted from the very beginning. And I'm kind of thinking maybe that's kind of what happened. Maybe, you know, Mike Seskus saw one thing happen, and then, um, you know, maybe he d- didn't quite know how to explain it. And then his mother heard one thing, heard heard something else, and she sort of added on. It's like it's sort of from the very beginning. Just it's like a domino effect of bad information. Yes. Episode 17 was called The Misinformation Effect, and it was right on the heels of the first episode with Chris Birch. If you recall in that episode, I spoke with Matt Seskus, Mike's brother. Matt is younger than Mike, and he wasn't there that morning to corroborate anything, but he was able to offer his perspective speaking as Mike's brother. Someone close to him, and even going that far back in episodes, Matt talked about the same kind of thing that Chris and I just talked about here's that clip
3: one other thing I will mention, and I since you had contacted me, I was trying to you know rack my brain uh, to try to remember what I knew and I actually I tried to avoid googling on you know the internet for information because i didn't want to be i didn't want to be uh, influenced by News yeah. reports that have been out there. I just wanted to try to strictly go off of my memory. Um, but I, and I'm, and again, Mike would be a better re- person to respond on that. But one thing I do recall, and this is from conversations with my mom and dad, is that um, rightfully so, Noreen Gosh uh, got very active in the search for Johnny. Mm-hmm. A- and from my Parents, my interpretation of what my parents told me is that the it didn't seem like the West Des Moines Police Department um, were took it as actively initially. I think um, you know it took Noreen to continuously contact them to actually make them you know to make them do anything, take any action. Yeah. It, uh,
0: yeah I think there was a sort of an assumption back then that um most missing kids were runaways, and that was sort of uh the attitude is that it's like oh did, he'll he'll show up he'll you know something like that you know
3: right and actually that's exactly what I was just gonna say is that um from what my, my i remember hearing from my parents is that the West Des Moines Police Department thought that yeah he was just he was just a runaway and so they didn't take it very seriously initially and um and so again i'm not saying that it it happened but it's not surprising that you know perhaps the west des moines police sort of laid out what you know what was what occurred in their opinion and just you know convinced mike to go along with it i yeah i don't know if that's true or not but it's not out of the question I'm you know, the police department just wanted to probably put that case to bed and and be over with it. Um until they realized that, you know, he wasn't coming back home and then then they sort of took uh took it seriously and but by then it was perhaps too late. If you
0: take anything away from this, please let it be this. No one saw what happened to Johnny, except for Johnny and the person who took him. What was seen by anyone else lays out like this. Chris Burge saw Johnny a little before 6 a.m. crossing in front of the Burges driveway on Marcourt Lane heading toward the corner at 42nd Street. John Rossi saw a boy talking to a man in a car and the boy told him the man needed directions. Rossi gave the man directions and the man left. John Rossi also left after picking up his kid's papers. The Bosin Brothers Kevin and Mark were walking down forty second street to the corner of Ashworth. They saw Johnny about to start his route on Marcourt Lane in the spot that he was taken from. P. J. Smith looked out his window that morning and saw a Ford Fairmont run the stop sign at forty second and Marcourt and continue up forty second. And that is all that was seen that morning. And now to get back to my conversation with Mark Hinshaw. We talked a little bit about Sam soda, and now I'd like to share with you the revelation that Mark made to me about Sam. It's my understanding that this little discovery was made when Ron Sampson dropped by to meet with Sam at his house.
1: You know, the one interesting thing that uh, Ron shared with me was, do you ever recall the, uh, there was some conversation about how Sam soda had, like, falsified having military medals
0: yeah, there was a report that he said that he was awarded a Purple Heart when, in fact, he was never awarded a Purple Heart.
1: Well, what's really interesting is that he, Ron saw all his military medals on Saturday, mm-hmm. or Friday, uh, saw his Purple Heart, and saw all of his medals.
0: So he did have a Purple and Heart.
1: He does have a Purple Heart, he does have all these medals. He was in the Marines for a long period of time. He was in combat for a long period of time. It's the real deal. And why? In again, Ron's, or Ron's theory is that this was just the Des Moines Register just that like this guy whatsoever.
0: Yeah, so they and that was that was what Sam was telling us when we were there. That it's like the Hi. Des Moines Register. I mean, I remember what he said. He was like, you know, they called me everything except a human being. So I guess they just like, you know, they made it a point to rip him apart every chance they could. Maybe he did have a purple heart. Obviously, if Ron saw it, and just um, th- that was just one story that they concocted just another story concocted by them to discredit sam right
1: so but you know that guy has absolutely zero bad involvement with this case and it's, i'm glad we're able to clear his name and i'm glad we're able to sort of uh get the juices going in him again because oh, he's yeah. a really he's a really good guy
0: Yeah, I I know. And I even after that day, when we were on the way back to your office, after we talked to him, I just remember I was in shock. And I actually felt a little bit guilty. I I felt bad for believing all the bad stuff about him. And it, it didn't occur to me until afterward that I guess, wow, I guess everything I did read about Sam Soda was just articles sort of concocted by people like through google searches and you know stuff that noreen said about him in her book and i guess that's really the only information that was ever available about him it never occurred to me that um that it was all one-sided and it, that it was all bias against I, him
1: It is. wife is uh just a, a very nice gal um and we might not he went and ate a restaurant where a bunch of his, like, uh, nieces and nephews work and he's, he's a very, uh, charismatic and very engaging and, um, you can tell very loved by those individuals. He's a, a really nice guy. Uh, just got a, a bad rap out of this. The good thing is the stuff just doesn't, it doesn't phase up whatsoever.
0: It, it's just it's crazy to think about too because he it I just one thing that I remember is that he just holds no bitterness towards Noreen or Frank Santiago or anybody else who said anything bad about him and I, all I can really think is well well you know what you are a better person than me then because I still have anger over some of the false things yeah. that have been said about me so it's like oh uh, if only. I
1: I think being a combat combat vet, he's uh, he's a pretty tough cookie. Um, so he's mentally uh, a pretty strong, strong individual.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, well, you can definitely tell. I mean, I, that became clear to me that that day that we met him, and I was like, I, it was such a pleasant surprise to see that he was not all the things that you know we had read about or heard through other parties. Sam Soda does have a purple heart after all. He never made that up. Talk about a wrong impression of a person. We also talked about Johnny's dad, John Sr., who also, sadly, has gotten a bad
1: rap over the years
0: and, by all accounts, could not be less deserving of that.
1: No, the, uh, John Gosh Sr., he's just, he's wonderful. Um, so, I think it's... Probably, you know, for all those years with Noreen going on and on and advancing all that craziness, it probably was very difficult for him to to ever be able to put forth the objective side of this case. Um, can you imagine?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, and and it's one of those things that I never had thought about. Um, I just, I remember when I started doing this podcast. My initial assumption was that I would be able to get a hold of Noreen and she would want to communicate and participate and because she is such a vocal person and that John would be the one that was hard to reach. And what ended up happening was the exact opposite. Um, Noreen didn't want to hear my timeline of events and and John was more than willing to talk about it. So it was... Yeah, it was completely flipped, and I just—it was not what I ever assumed would happen, and not even occurred to me. Didn't, I didn't—I—I had always kind of assumed that he just was a quiet guy and didn't want to talk publicly well, about this
1: stuff. Yeah, I mean, for the last for the last thirty years, she's controlled and dominated the narrative of the case. Yeah, and he really yeah. hasn't. I mean, it's been so dominating that he hasn't really had the opportunity to ever put out his side or to even investigate his side, you know, which is more common sense, uh, realistic, you know, trying to dig to the the real truth rather than trying to get a TV or book deal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, that's why, like, even if, I mean, even if we don't find what happened to Johnny I mean I'm at least glad that we were able to give John this voice and this platform because I think had we not all come together like this he probably would have gone the rest of his life without ever having that opportunity
1: right absolutely and you know he and his wife uh, they're full-time RVers mm-hmm. so they they spend their summers up in Alaska, and then they make their way back down to Florida. And uh, just very great individuals. And um, I think it's in his retirement, probably I, I do feel like he probably feels like he never got a fair shake at things, or, uh, um, or probably makes quite it. I try to do more about uh, when Doreen was advancing all these conspiracy theories.
0: So it's like I said to Mark, we might never find out what happened to Johnny Gosh. But even if that turns out to be the case, this was not all for nothing. But we are going to keep trying, make no mistake about that. I will be back in Des Moines in April, recording episodes on the ground just as I did in September. Until then, Faded Out will be starting a second season, and we'll be following a case local to us out of Wallingford, Connecticut. It's the missing person cold case of 12 year old Doreen Jane Vincent, who disappeared from her father's house on June 15, 1988, and was never seen or heard from again. Season 2 will premiere in January 2019. Faded Out is on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. We are also on Instagram as Faded Out Podcast. If you would like to get in touch, you can email us at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. Please also subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and any platform where you get your podcasts. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. The next update specific to season one will be coming in the spring. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.